0: Earlier this week, Garda detectives in Dundalk quizzed a man about an IRA attack. Now, that headline might sound relatively normal, but the man being quizzed is in his 80s, and the attack happened. In 1959, sixty years ago, uh, he's been quizzed in relation to a recently published memoir called *My Life in the IRA*. All of which raises some questions around memoirs, history, and when politics enters the realm of the past. It's, it's perhaps an uncomfortable reminder that maybe the Northern conflict isn't ready for historians just yet. And Donald Fallon is here to tell us all about it. Donald, good afternoon. How are good to be you? Here, good to be here. Uh, the past, of course, is, is never too far away from the present when it comes to the north
1: of the border. Well, James Joyce said, "History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake." You know, <laughs> on, on both sides uh, of. Of, of the border, I think that's true, but especially in 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 the north of Ireland and in recent times. Uh, too, you know, the the past is always there, mm. and I mean, the Northern Irish conflict it was historically important. That's agreed on by everyone. What isn't agreed on, what's contested, is the manner in which the conflict should be engaged with and and commemorated. And the news this week that that Michael Ryan author of this this very uh, interesting book, mm. My Life in the IRA, uh, was quizzed in relation to a memoir that's primarily set in the 1950s, uh, so before the Troubles, you know, yeah. before the date that we consider the Troubles have begun. It's something that historians and perhaps some some politicians uh, will note with. with with kind of interest. So there has been a lot of investigation uh, into cold cases from the Troubles yeah. so 1969 to 1998. But for me, what, what's interesting about this story is it's that the, the really haphazard, ill-fated 1950s IRA border campaign. Mm.
0: And, and before we get into the whole uh, ethics or the sort of the difficult tangle about uh, how you can write about things and whether they're still open to, to criminal investigation, this is a book which has been warmly received for being so
1: honest about the yeah, I all. hope people don't, don't don't hear us talk about this book and think this book is some kind of you know bra- braggadocio about about one man's involvement in the IRA. It's anything but, to be honest. Michael Ryan was born in Dublin's East Wall uh, in the nineteen forties, and I think what this man has written is one of the most insightful autobiographies that I've ever read concerning life in a paramilitary okay. organization. And I've read a lot of them, you know, from both loyalists, UVF, UDA. Uh, and Republican perspectives and what I like about this book is it doesn't have the usual kind of macho bravado that can feature in these books but really it's an acknowledgement of mistakes of misjudgment futility and it was launched by by the the broadcaster Vincent Brown and Vincent Brown said something that I totally agree with he said the book gives insight into the madness and futility of the IRA's shambolic border campaign and that's what makes this book well worth reading Mm. so it's very rare that you read a book like this you know, where the author is willing to acknowledge disappointments failures and concludes with a very regretful tone
0: Uh, and yes uh, uh, it opens sort of innocently enough not about you know the, the scars
1: of war from north of the border but just as
0: a memoir about growing up in Dublin
1: The book flows so well you know the, the first chapter of it the first two chapters of it are just about growing up in Dublin you know in the 1940s in East Wall down in the Docklands and I just loved the way Mick writes he says you know on down by the Liffey towards the gantry over past the canal bridge and the ship's moored to the Quays past Campion's Pub where there were still a few stragglers making polite exchanges of nice day bad day or whatever would pass onto to Wapping Street a dead street like the rest of the Keys on a Sunday deserted and depressing with nothing but the steady trumming of the pigeon house pumping station in the background beautiful it's it's, it's, it's almost Joyceian you know it's just a beautiful description of growing up uh, in 1940s Dublin and then the book takes you from that into the chaos of the IRA border campaign As
0: as you mentioned in your introduction as well uh, the border campaign often overshadowed by then what happened what is formally recognised as being the Troubles and as a result then the the border campaign still somewhat understood. Yeah if,
1: if any period of political drama you know in 20th century Irish history is still underwritten largely. I think it's this campaign. And it was no, known as, codenamed Operation Harvest internally. The border campaign was exactly what it sounds like. You know, it did exactly what it said on the tin mm. essentially. Small groups of men move across the border in the cover of darkness, attack police and army points, and then move back into the south. Nothing happens in Belfast. They don't penetrate deep into Northern Ireland, but they hit on the border. And the IRA at the time was relatively well armed. I mean, they raided Gough barracks in Armagh in 1954, took 250 Lee-Enfield rifles, 37 submachine guns, and seemed to have a little bit of momentum even politically. Mm. The the general election, the UK election in 1955, there was shock and horror in London when Sinn Féin actually took seats uh, in Fermanagh, South Tyrone and Mid-Ulster. So Mm -hmm. it seemed to be a bit of a moment for the IRA. They felt that way anyway. What they didn't have was any kind of political direction. And what they get involved in then is this futile campaign action for the sake of action, you might say.
0: So to suggest then that that there were some Sinn Féin uh, victories in some of those suggested that there was a little bit of public enthusiasm for this campaign but I'd imagine it didn't hang around for too long. It waned
1: very quick. At the beginning of the border campaign young men die you know, and that's always good for rallying people behind the cause. So you get Sean South from from, from Limerick, Fergal O'Hanlon both killed in one row and their funerals in Monaghan and Limerick are just these massive spectacles. I mean these are considered some of the largest funerals in Ireland since the revolutionary period but the public support wanes quickly because people ask a very important question. What's the point of this? You know, where is yeah. where is this going? It just seems like a, a, a tit for tat campaign of, of, of small raids on barracks mm. and public support wanes quickly for that reason. How does the government uh, down south deal do you know, is in charge. I mean, this is the peculiar thing about the, the Irish state in the mm. 1950s and 60s. The fathers of the state are often veterans of political violence themselves. Yeah, yeah. They're people that have come through uh, the revolutionary period. So it's one thing when you've been imprisoned, you know, but it's another thing when you're putting people into it. And, and the De Valera government really struggles with that, but they have to do something. In mean, 1957, the 341 incidents recorded in this campaign. In one year? 341 incidents wow. on the border. So De Valera's government would impose very significant punishment on people involved and people not involved. That's the problem. Yeah. Including internment. And internment throughout Irish history has, has rarely worked. But I think for young men who were raised in the shadow of the revolutionary period they looked at people like De Valera and said you had your go old man You know, we're going to have heirs now. And I think they felt a kind of sad moral obligation to fight. They felt history alone will vindicate us. Mm. And you know, in the words of one participant he said what it was about was keeping the flame alive. It didn't matter if we went out and lost, if everyone was killed in one raid. We'd gone out, we kept the flame uh, alive. But it was directionless stuff. I mean, never capable of threatening to undermine the Northern Irish state in any way. All it resulted in was the loss of life of six, or you see constables, eight IRA men, and the serious injury of dozens of people on both sides.
0: I, I suppose that whole point about keeping the flame alive as well. This is this being 1957. The border itself, or partition, is only what 35 Absolutely. years old. So they're sort of they're worried about it becoming normalised in the way to which it, it sort of has now. And um, ultimately, though the campaign fizzles out, and the IRA has a slightly odd excuse yeah, then for ludicrously. who they
1: blame. I mean, when, when when explaining why the campaign has been brought to an end, the IRA blamed the general public. You know, it was your fault. And in their statement, they say. <laughs> (laughs) foremost among the factors motivating this course of action has been the attitude of the general public whose minds have been deliberately distracted from the supreme issue facing the Irish people, the unity and freedom of (laughs) Ireland. Many people in 1950s Ireland perhaps would have argued there are other significant issues uh, at play too. But I've always found that statement kind of curious. You know, we lost because you didn't rally behind us. I don't
0: remember there being a plebiscite about whether they should have gone ahead with it in the first place. But but there we go. Um, Talking then more about Michael Ryan's book and it dramatically details one man's man's involvement in in all of this campaign.
1: And the language, I mean, what we heard earlier on about growing up in 1940s Dublin, the, the way the book flows is fantastic. And when it gets into the border campaign, I'd say it reads like, it reads like a boy's own uh, adventure story. And that's the magazine, boys, though, not the band? Yes. Sir. Uh, for younger, for younger <laughs> listeners. younger. <verification>. But he <laughs> describes, like, participation uh, in this attack where they detonate a mine as a police jeep approaches. And the way it's written is it just says, as it reached my marker, I touched the open end of the flex to the battery. I did this by touch as I had to keep my eyes glued on my marker. The mine explodes. The jeep was hit all right because I could see some parts of it fly into the air and land a few la- yards away. We were showered with clay and debris. The three of us immediately opened fire on the jeep or where we thought it was lying. Two of us were Thompson's each fired a 20 round magazines and a few bursts while the rifle man got off a couple of rounds Dramatic and stuff there's, It is dramatic stuff and there's no fatalities on this incident mm. and there are a couple of injuries uh, but this is what has led to Ryan's quizzing I think and last year actually a DUP MLA when the book came out said you know this man should be brought before the courts mm. but in truth You know, memoirs of this period are just so rare, especially one that isn't clouded by any kind of ideology. And I think that it's his very open acknowledgement of the futility of all of this, his regret that young men were dragged into such violence for so little. The book has this real searing honesty. And what I'd like to see, actually, is memoirs of this from the other side. You know, or I see men who are on the other side of the border campaign detailing their own feelings because this book has filled a real gap.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But particularly because of the uh, the debate that's ongoing in Britain at the moment about mm. the role of their own army people north of the border and, and whether that, that should be a closed book or whether there should be some um, accountability for it. So, so on the whole topic then of um, publishing a book like this, mm. which is a very candid first-hand account, which isn't, as you said, you know, trying to wave any particular yeah, flag yeah. Or,
1: or spread any ideology.
0: What does it mean then for other people who might be more inclined in, to write first-hand accounts in, of, of stuff
1: like that? In the here and now, probably a reluctance, you know, to, to write about the past. And I think, there is a massive contemporary importance in understanding what happened in Ulster and beyond. I mean, people in the North in recent weeks, as we know, tried to launch their own futile campaign. I mean, we should know the lessons of the past. We have to learn them. Mm. And I mean, I think, to be honest, I mean, it, it, there's going to be an unwillingness now in some quarters, I think, to discuss people's involvement. People that were involved in loyalist paramilitaries in particular. There's been very, very few memoirs of note written from the loyalist side. Yeah, uh, The political potential prosecution of British soldiers which emerged recently in relation to the Bloody yeah. Sunday raises questions as well I mean is it possible even to have both justice and peace You know, yeah. or in living in a peaceful Northern Ireland will many people have to forgo the thought of ever seeing people brought to justice yeah. so there's a lot of questions in the North now around how you move forward while being able to acknowledge, talk about and learn from the past I,
0: I love that turn of phrase is it possible to have justice and peace it's such an elegant way of just trying to get your head around the whole complexity of it all um, then are there less lessons for archives and for archivists about how you deal with all of that if there is a certain amount of first-hand testimony that's there
1: which could be material to me I think we need to look back uh, to look forward You look back you know what is the future of the past the Bureau of Military History for me I mean a body that interviewed participants in the Irish Revolution period they did that in the 1940s I think they might have left left it a little bit too long actually because memory is such a funny thing Mm. but that's a brilliant archival collection the witness statements we often pull them in the slot and you know they remained historically sensitive and restricted until recent times they're only uh, released after all the interviewees had passed yeah. and time had passed, equally important. So, who can ensure that we can build an oral history like that of the Northern conflict? Mm. You know, you'll have to sit down and talk to everyone from British soldiers to IRA gunmen, yeah. peace campaigners, trade union leaders, anyone that was involved yeah. in any way, shape, or form. And how do you do that without causing contemporary political tension? We had the Boston College tape yes, scandal just gonna say. not too long ago yeah. with the arrest of Jerry Adams and the like. So that all makes this really, really difficult. But that archive, you know, it's going to be hard. It has to be built. It has to be preserved. And the most important thing, it has to be kept safe.
0: It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff and, and really it's a whole Pandora's box of how do you deal with someone who is trying to be candid and at least to try and put it out there in the public sphere not just do as a, a Boston College style thing they want to contribute to an oral history but have it under lock and key they want to have uh, yeah. the story out of there the f- and they want to convert the public but it comes with a certain amount of of dangers for the judicial process and for, for justice and crime and everything else as well uh, fascinating as ever Donald thanks a million Donald Fallon uh, is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books volumes 1 and 2 of which are available in all good bookshops now